Yeah, you can clap for that. We did have a great time together and uh, just thank uh, God for all that he did for Mo on our staff that put a lot of that together. And, um, you know, we just got really real with each other. And it was uh, just a really an amazing time. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, you're glad you're here? You know, last week we started this new series, Christianity 101. And we started talking about what it really is. We're looking at the Gospel of John. And we talked last week about how the Gospel of John only uses 600 different vocabulary words, really the vocabulary of a seven-year-old, this simple fisherman who followed Jesus. And he used the vocabulary so that a seven-year-old could understand it. And yet it's so deep, his gospel, so profound that great theologians and philosophers have, have tried to just, you know, get to the bottom of it. And still it's deeper. So I want us to continue to look at that. You know, there are some tensions in the gospel of John. And as we look at some of that, we'll see one, one author called it a paradoxicon, his gospel. Why? Well, listen to some of the things that he said that Jesus said, come and live, come and die. Be wise as serpents, be innocent as doves. Lord, I believe, said someone, help my unbelief. You want to be first, be last. You want to rule, be servant of all. You want to find yourself, lose yourself. You want to be exalted, be humble. You want to serve me, says God. I came to serve you. You see, the Greeks, their gods, when they talked about the gods, they're just capricious, they're bored, they're uh, whimsical, they're, you know, just kind of toy with mankind, just out of boredom mostly. But John shows us God on his knees with a towel wrapped around his waist, saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I found that it's much more difficult to be served than to serve. Have you discovered that? You know, when you get to some place, maybe you have an illness or you have something going on that's debilitating and you have to be served. It's hard. It's hard to take it. We want to be the ones, we want to be in that position, you know, that, that, that is the server, not the humble, humbling position of being served. Last week, we talked about logos, about the whole idea of the divine principle behind the whole universe that the Greeks had debated for many hundreds of years before John used the word and said, no, logos, that defining principle behind everything, logos is a person, a unique personality, the person of Jesus Christ. We learned last week why so many young Americans don't believe in absolute truth. And I want you to check it out. If you weren't here because you're on holiday, just go back and, and take a look at that because it helps build on um, how we're picking up and understanding what Christianity really is. There's a lot of tensions in the gospel of John. Two words that I think we pull way out of context when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to religion, the word faith and the word believe. You know, if you take 
just religion out of the equation. We know what we mean when we say, I believe something or I have faith in something. But then when you bring it into religion, especially I think in American Christianity, sometimes we change the whole definition of the word. It kind of becomes this kind of vague hope, this I'm hoping for something. I'm hoping that this is real. But, you know, in the real world, we base what we believe on evidence, on evidence. And John wants us to do the same thing. He says, I don't want you just to have some vague hope. You know, a lot of times I talk to people and they said, well, I just, you know, I just, I don't, I just can't believe. We think the opposite of faith sometimes is reason, but that's not what the Bible says. I'm not asking you to throw your reason out. I'm not asking you to throw your good sense out. In fact, what does the Bible say? We walk by faith, not by sight. So the opposite of faith is sight. What does that mean exactly? I think it means that we see things that come into our lives that don't line up with what our feeling of what God should be like. And so it affects us. It affects faith. And we see these different things, this injustice or these problems or these issues, you know, and sometimes we can still even have faith when we just look at the injustice of the world. Some people can't. They're just, you know, I can't believe in God because I look out there and I see all that in injustice, you know. But others of us, it's not until it gets real personal. Injustice, I'm experiencing it now. God, where are you? Are you not real? Are you not there? And it, it rocks our faith. It, it causes us to feel something because God didn't line up with how we think God should be. You know, we get conflicting information all the time, and we have to decide what we believe. Let me just give you a really quick example. Is coffee good for you? Well, there's a lot of conflicting information out there, isn't there? You know, I did see a big study that I believe that said after four cups of coffee, Everything seems better, so that's why we ply you with coffee like crazy out there, you know? We might be pretty mediocre up here, but you guys don't know it. You're going, this is great, you know? Wow, I never heard music like that. I never heard preaching like that. But it's just the coffee, you know? So, hey, that's, that's a little secret I'll let you in on, you know? Um, and I don't know about you, but I kind of have a confirmation bias. I tend to look at the ones that say coffee is great for you. You'll live to be 150, you know, if you drink enough coffee. Don't know if that's accurate, but I like it, okay? But have you, ever, have you ever been around people that are going through devastating circumstances and yet their faith is unwavering, like dying of cancer or the loss of a spouse or a child or betrayal by a spouse, but their faith in Jesus can't be shaken? It's like, they're on a whole nother plane in some ways, aren't they? In a whole different place. I remember my good friend, David Luger, who passed away a few years ago. And he, he and I had gotten to be close friends because he went on a lot of the mission trips that we went on to Burundi and other places. And he got cancer and it was like stage four, basically. We prayed over him and the doctors were amazed. It was all gone. And then some months later, 
he got cancer again and he died from it. It just, you know, took over and God didn't heal him. And I don't know if you've experienced something like that, but I was like pretty disappointed in God actually. Like that seems like a bait and switch, God. You know, that seems like kind of dirty tricks, you know. But you know what David would tell me when I would say, I don't understand what God's doing. He would say, Mark, God showed me and he showed my family because he'd been praying for his kids that he could heal me. But he's also, he, he obviously has another plan that he wants to do. He could heal me. He already showed me that. But he obviously has another plan, a different plan that I don't understand, but I know that he's good. Dr. Francis Collins was the director of the Human Genome Project. You know, we've mapped the human genome. It's amazing because there's 3.1 billion nucleotides in each of our cells. Did you know that? Like these little, all, they all have a little letter and stuff, and we had to map all of those 3.1 billion. He's, he, he's a, he headed that up. He's a brilliant doctor. Now, his parents were agnostic. At age 27, Colin says that doing rounds in residency, he kept bumping into Christians with terminal diagnoses. And he said they were radiant in their faith and their trust in Jesus. Basically, they had been given death sentences, and he just, he couldn't understand it. Why were these people not shaking their fists at God? Why were their friends and families, you know, not told to shut up and stop all this talk about a loving God, a supernatural power. They're dying. God isn't healing them or answering their prayers. And so as he meets these believers, he's just unnerved. And one afternoon, one of his favorite patients was near death, and she was a strong believer. And she said, Doctor, I've told you what I believe. What do you believe? He says, I turned red and stammered out, uh, I'm not really sure. But he said as he went home and through the week or so after that, it just haunted him. Here's what he says. He says, faced with my willful blindness and my arrogance, I began a journey. See, what he was saying was, I haven't seen, but I'm not really looking. I've just kind of considered myself an agnostic, but I haven't really searched it out. I, I don't know, but I haven't really asked the question seriously. There may be something more, but I've never explored it. And as he delved into the claims of Jesus and researched meticulously the gospel of John, he became convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And he stepped into faith. He became a believer, this brilliant scientist. Christianity is not about just believing or hoping, taking things by faith. John didn't follow Jesus because of just a blind hope. And he would caution you and me about this. He followed Jesus because of what he had heard and seen and experienced. In fact, let me read you from 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, and the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. This is a little book that John wrote later, but he was explaining a little more even about what his gospel was about. And he says this, from the very first day 
we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose, what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. And it's interesting because as he writes this, he's the last of the apostles. The rest of them have all been martyred. They've all been killed. Some boiled in oil, some crucified upside down. We've seen all these different things that have happened because they wouldn't recant their faith. They said, how can we do that? We've seen the truth. We've walked with the truth. Now, John wrote very selective things. We talked about that a little bit last week. The first 10 chapters of John cover the 33 and a half years of Jesus' life, those whole first 33 and a half years. And then the last 11 chapters cover one week, just one week of his life. Of his life, and that was that very last week. But listen to what the end of John in his gospel, he says, I'm going to tell you why I wrote what I did, why I selected the things that I selected. He says this in John 20, 30 and 31. He says, Jesus provided far more God-revealing signs than are written down in this book. Not, he's not talking about the whole Bible. He's talking about in his book, John. These are written down so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and in the act of believing, have real and eternal life in the way that he personally revealed it. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John carefully crafts what he's, what he's trying to say, each sentence to unveil the fascinating mysteries of heaven in such simple language. He painstakingly chose which facts to put in and what part of the story that he didn't need to put in for what he was trying to accomplish. And he had a twofold purpose, he says, to communicate Christ through his miracles and teachings so that, first off, we might see that he was who he said that he was, the Son of God, and then second, so that we could understand how to have eternal life moving into that belief and making that part of our life. It's interesting, he, he uses the word life over and over, and it's the word zoe in Greek. My little granddaughter Zoe is life, and she is. I mean, it just describes her. But when it says Zoe, it always is talking about a, a special kind of life, a God kind of life, an eternal life, God's life. And then there's the word believe. It's used 98 times in John's gospel multiple times in every chapter. Pisteuo is what it is in the Greek, but it means literally to believe 
into. It's more than just intellectual. It's to believe into. It's to take everything that you are and move into that belief. Every Sunday in churches across America, there are multitudes who listen but have never really explored, much less given themselves over to the message of Jesus and placed their absolute trust in him. And that's a tragedy. And a lot of them say, yes, I'm a believer. But John is talking about believing into him, not just listening and nodding agreement, but submitting our hearts, our wills, our all to him, the truth of him being Jesus, and to receive that eternal life through him alone. So we're called first and foremost to believe into him. And it's really important that we realize that. I I was thinking of Francis Collins again. He said, faced with my willful blindness and arrogance, I began a journey. Willful blindness. Tim Keller, who has been one of my heroes, he was uh, the pastor at a church in New York City that brought just young people like crazy from all over New York City. And, And it was a real traditional church. He passed away recently, and he passed away still saying God is good as he had cancer and and died from it. But in college, he said he was studying the great works of great thinkers like Blake Pascal and, and others, and he said what he discovered about belief. You know, he said he used to think like, I'm on the shore of reason, and out there somewhere is an island of belief, and I'm gonna have to decide if I'm gonna take this leap from reason out there onto that island. And he said, after studying the works of these great thinkers, what he realized was, it's more like there's three islands and I'm on the middle one. He said, the one I'm on is not inhabitable, so I have to make a choice. He said, any choice I make comes with great risk. If I say there is no God and I jump to that island, and I say, this is what I'm choosing for my life. He said, it comes with a risk that there is a God. It comes with a risk that even that Jesus is God, and I'm risking eternity on my belief. He said, if I jump to the other island that says Jesus is God, then I'm risking this life because he, the way he tells us to live it, if we're going to walk with him and be with him and, and, and follow him is like radical. It's a, a life of giving, a life of service, a life that doesn't. So he said, there's some pretty hedonistic things I'm going to miss out on in life that other people are doing. But he said, I, I realized that I'm in this in-between place and, and that I have to make some choice if what John said is true, missing out on being my, my own God in this life is, is what'll happen. I mean, I, 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 I can't be my own God. I have to choose God. Some people are always trying to tell him, he said in that time that, well, if there is a God, why is there so much evil? And he said, as he was studying these great thinkers, he was thinking, 
If there is no God, what do you mean evil? The whole concept of evil goes out the window. I mean, that you don't see that in nature. In nature, the strong eat the weak, right? I read this week about uh, a tragedy. That, uh, a young man who had just graduated high school, he went off to Bermuda with his high school uh, group, and they were just, you know, partying and celebrating. He'd only been in Bermuda a few hours. They went out on a party boat, and, and they're going around one part of the island, and um, he was drunk, and he jumped off, decided to take a swim. Unfortunately, what he didn't know was that it was a hugely shark-infested part of the waters, and he's gone all of a sudden. They said he just disappeared. Well, if that shark got him, you know, that shark is a big sinner, right? I mean, that's just mean. Sharks, I mean, that's a mean thing to do. You shouldn't eat that kid. Wait a minute. Sharks don't know that, do they? You know, the strong eat the weak. There it is. It's just available. And, and so what he started thinking as he was studying these guys, they were saying, like, without God, all things are permissible. It's my truth. It's what I think. He started thinking about lions are serial killers, you know. They, they're killing all the time, and we don't think anything about that. And yet we judge evil among human beings. Where does that come from? I think as he was studying it, he started to believe as he researched it and looked into it that what John said was true. And we see it in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. In verse 9 of chapter 1, John says this, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's the, that's where we got the idea of good and evil, of morality and everything else was from God long ago. He was the true light. And now he's coming into our world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. He came to those that were his own, but his own did not receive him. Max Lucado tells a parable about a, a, a tribe who lived in a deep, dark cave and had never come out of that cave. They were so far back in the cave, they didn't even realize that there was anything else. It was a deep, dark, cold cave. And the cave dwellers would huddle together, cry against the chill. I mean, they were always complaining. It was all they did. It was all they knew to do. The sounds in the cave were always mournful. The people, they didn't know it. That's all they'd ever experienced. It. They had never known joy. The spirit in the cave was death, but the people didn't know it for they had never known life. But one day, says Max Licato, let me just read it to you. They heard a different voice. I've heard your cries, it announced. I have felt your chill, seen your darkness. I've come to help you. The cave grew quiet. They had never heard this voice. Hope sounded strange in their ears. How can we know you've come to help? Trust me, he answered. I have what you need. The cave people peered through the darkness at the figure of the stranger. He was stacking something, then stooping and stacking more. What are you doing? One said nervously. The stranger didn't answer. What are you making? Another shouted even louder. There was still no response. Tell us, demanded a third. The visitor stood and spoke in the direction of the voices. I have what you need. With that, he turned to the pile at his feet and lit it. Wood ignited. Flame erupted, 
Light filled the cavern. The people turned away in fear. Put it out, they cried. It hurts to see it. Light always hurts before it helps, he answered. Step closer. The pain will soon pass. Not I, declared a voice, nor I, agreed a second. Only a fool would risk exposing his eyes to such light, said another. The stranger stood next to the fire. Would you prefer the darkness? Would you prefer the cold? Don't consult your fears. Take a step of faith into the light. For a long time, no one spoke. The people hovered in groups, covering their eyes. The fire builder stood next to the fire. It's warm here, he invited. He's right, one from behind him announced. It is warmer. The stranger turned to see a figure slowly stepping toward the fire. I can open my eyes now, she proclaimed. I can see. Come closer, invited the fire builder. She did. She stepped into the ring of light. It's so warm. She extended her hands and sighed as her chill began to pass. Come, everyone, feel the warmth, she said. Silence, woman, said one of the cave dwellers. Dare you lead us into your folly? Leave us, leave us, and take your light with you. She turned to the stranger. Why won't they come? He said, they choose the chill, for though it's cold, it's what they know. They'd rather be cold than to change. And live in the dark, she asked. And live in the dark, he replied. But listen to what John says in verse 12, because he goes on. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John is going to invite us in this series to make a step. He's going to say, let me show you what I experienced. Let me tell you about this one. And that's why I always say, if you're seeking and truly seeking, like Francis Collins was, you'll find a lot of us, we come in with some confirmation biases, and I'm asking you to, like, just put all those away on either side, and let's look at what Jesus says, and let's hear his words with just like a whole new understanding. It's going to be kind of messy. It's kind of messy if you think about it, because when you see Jesus' life, it almost seems inconsistent. You see, at the very end there, it says that he came from the Father and he's full of grace and truth. And we have this tension there. And you see it in almost everything Jesus does because, you know, we'll look at him and we'll think, wow, he's just so loving. And, and, and I hear people all the time, well, God is a God of love, you know. But he's also a God of truth. Sometimes Jesus was really 
kind of brusque with people. I mean, if you really read his words and woe to you, you know, and you are like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead things. He was hard to understand sometimes. Look at him with the woman at the well. We'll see that in, in, in a few Sundays from now. But here he is, and, and he's speaking as a Jew to a Samaritan woman. That's grace. No one did that. Men didn't even speak to women, much less Jews to Gentile women. But he's talking to her, and he asked her to get him a drink. And then she starts asking him some questions, and he says, go and get your husband and come back. And she said, I don't have a husband. And what does he do then? He looks her right in the eye. He said, you speak the truth because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. And you're again, you're, you know, you're thinking, well, Jesus, it was going pretty good, but did you not take counseling 101, you know? I mean, that sounds like you're shaming her almost. It, it sounds like you just went, you went into the most painful part of her life where she's struggling maybe from some past trauma or whatever with her relationships with men. But he goes on to say, but I'm here now. And I came, I came to quench that thirst. I can give you what no man could ever offer you. I can give you living water from the inside so you don't thirst again. You look at him with the thief on the cross, you know, he was, he was crucified between the two thieves. And they didn't just crucify people for no reason. They crucified the worst of the worst. That was their justice. These were probably murderers, thieves, you know, thieves that had committed even murder in the, in the, in the course of their thievery. And one of them's mocking him and the other one says, shut up. You look at Jesus, we're getting what we deserve and what did Jesus do? He didn't look at him and go, no, no, you're, you're better than you think, right? You're not that bad. I mean, they just shouldn't have put you up here on the cross. That was kind of a raw deal. No, he agreed with them completely. But he looked at him and he said, Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. I can see it in this moment. I don't understand why you're on a cross with me. But remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. You're going, wow, grace, what grace. But wait a minute, just a few chapters before, this really good guy that was a rich young ruler and had done everything right, he came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus told him, sell everything that you have and come and follow me. But the thief on the cross, he said, you don't have to do anything. You're going to be with me in paradise. You feel this tension. And we want to resolve this tension. Maybe you grew up in a church that would say, you know, we're the truth tellers, you know, and we're the ones that always speak the truth. And it was harsh and difficult. And, you know, if you fell and tripped, they would just look at you and say, well, put her out of her misery, Pow! you know. Or maybe you were in a, opposite kind of church that was all grace and no truth. At Community of Faith, we try to find that tension and live in the tension, and it's messy, and it's not easy. 
That's why when you come in, it's like everyone, you should feel at home here. We're all the same. That doesn't mean you want to stay the same, right? That doesn't mean we don't want to find the truth of God and step into it with all that we are. We have to be truth tellers too. So we have this tension. You see it in the woman caught in adultery. You know, they drag her out because they're trying to test Jesus. And they said, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I think they must have set her up. You know, I don't know where the guy was. They used to set her up, but they thought, we'll get the woman here, okay? Because in the very act, that means they ran in and interrupted stuff and said, hey, just grabbed her and pulled her out there. I mean, what's she doing? Trying to like cover herself back up and everything. And this is Jesus, the law says we're to stone her that she has to die for her adultery. And Jesus said, okay, the law of Moses, that's clear. So stone her. The one of you without sin, throw the first stone. And then he bends down and he writes in the dirt. And I'm thinking, what's he writing in the dirt? Imagine each one of them that picked up a stone, they walked up and he wrote their inner sin in the dirt, you know, lust covetousness, maybe adultery, wit, and he even wrote a name, you know? And they're just like dropping their stones and it said they all walked away. Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, does no one condemn you? And she said, no. And he said, go and sin no more. But there you see it again. He says, step into me know that I don't condemn you. I'm here to give you life. Now I want you to sin no more. I want you to change your lifestyle after knowing me. So we're going to feel this tension and we're going to embrace the truth, but we're going to feel the grace all around it. You see the paradoxicon, all of that, it's the answer to that is found when the logos the supreme being of the universe is on the cross for us. He said, sin has a gotcha. And I don't want that for you. And I have come. You reach into what I've done for you as I've broken through. I came to serve you. Have you let Christ serve you? I remember when David Luger passed away. I was there at his house and he'd been praying for his kids for a long time. And it was sweet. His grandchildren were holding on to his feet and his kids were all around and seemed like it was taking a long time for him to pass, even though the doctor said it could be any minute. And he was at home. And so some of them had gone outside to just kind of take a break. And all of a sudden, David breathed his last. And the craziest thing happened. I've never seen it before. But out of the blue, with it was a clear blue sky, but out of the blue, this huge breeze came. And it, started, it blew over. They had these giant potted plants and, and palm trees outside. And they were weighed hundreds of pounds in their pots. And it blew all of them over at once. And it was in that exact second. In fact, his son-in-law ran in and said, what just happened? I said, well, he just breathed his last. And I said, and I think the chariots came. I couldn't see them, but man, you could feel the breeze. 
God is good. He knows what he's doing. He says, I want you to believe into me. I came to serve you. Have you let him serve you? Have you? Are you trying to be your own God? You don't have very many choices in between. I want you just to close your eyes with me. If you could see with the eyes of your spirit, you would see that he's here right now. He's alive. He's real. Some of you know it without a shadow of a doubt. You've experienced him. Some of you don't know that yet. We learned last week that he is the eternal word. And the word is, I love you. I want you in my family. Little girl, I'm dying for you. Little boy, I'm dying for you. Reach into what I've done and who I am and experience this. And I want to invite you into that journey, the journey that Francis Collins took. Maybe it's just a questioning journey over these next few weeks. But if you'll really be seeking as you read the Gospel of John and as we study it together, he'll meet you. I've seen it happen hundreds of times. He'll meet you. Your questions are welcome here. Your struggles are welcome here. Your anger toward a God you may or may not believe in is welcome here. Maybe by sight you've seen some things and you're disillusioned with God. Why would he allow this? We don't understand. It doesn't make any sense. No, he's God. I don't know either. I'll probably be outraged with you. But he's saying, I still want you to know how much I love you. And he stretched out his hands and took the nails to embrace you. Father, as we study this, if we are believers already, let us remember how much you love us. Let us never forget that. Some of us as believers are going through some deep trials right now, and we don't understand what has come into our life. Maybe we won't understand it this side of heaven. I thank you that I got to see with David Luger that his kids and his grandkids stepped into faith where they hadn't been before. But we don't always get to see it. Help us to know in our knower. Help us to get that sense that you are good and you're always working. You started a good work in us. Like we sang earlier, you're going to finish what you started. For those of us who haven't stepped into this yet, help us to just open our minds and seek you with all of our heart. Father, you draw us, you show us, you reveal yourself to us over these weeks. And I know that's according to your will. So I say, come kingdom of God upon us, be done will of God over us and let nothing stop what you have in mind for us. In Jesus name, amen.